Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Digitize live in that computer studio in Cape Coral, Florida. Hey everybody and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II based podcast. And uh, I just want to thank everybody for joining us for another week. Real quick, let's just get some housekeeping out of the way. If you didn't know, well, you can download this podcast, yes, at d-410.com, at whatsthescuttlebutt.com. You can download us on Apple Podcasts, Play Music, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Stitcher. Please subscribe, download, share us with your friends. And while you're at it, check me out on Instagram at dtrain410. You can find us on Facebook at the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast. Type that into the search bar on Facebook. And on Twitter, you can follow me at Donovan410. And one more thing before we get the show started, I still have a handful of the What's the Scuttlebutt beta stickers that were sent to us. And so if you're interested in having a free sticker, just email me at info at d-410.com, private message us on our Facebook page or at the Twitter or any of the pages I just gave out. Just say, hey, Don, I want a free sticker. Give me your address, your name, and I will send it off to you. And you can proudly put it wherever you want. And um, so thank you so much for that. And I just want to really thank everybody for your continued support for my little podcast that could. Where numbers are growing, uh, the last episode with uh, Neil Rockmore, the downloads were tremendous on that. So thank you, everybody, for your continued support. And uh, it means a lot to me. But big news today, um, I'm sure you've, most of you have seen it. If not, let me share the big news from you. And I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm getting this from the... Uh, National Public Radio website, wreckage of World War II aircraft carrier found in the South Pacific Ocean. More than 75 years after the aircraft carrier USS Hornet sank in a World War II battle, researchers have uncovered its wreckage three miles underneath the South Pacific Ocean. The Hornet played a huge role in several key events in the war, including Doolittle's raid on Japan and the pivotal Battle of Midway. Since it sank, its resting place has been a mystery. An expedition crew founded by Microsoft co-owner Paul Allen has been searching for historically significant shipwrecks for many years. Quote, we had the Hornet on our list of World War II ships that we wanted to locate because of its place in history as an aircraft carrier that saw many pivotal roles in naval battles. Robert Kraft, director of subsea operations for Allen's company Vulcan, said in a statement, The team used data from the National and Naval Archives along with a dive from an autonomous underwater vehicle to find the ship. They located it at the bottom of the ocean around the Solomon Islands last month. The Hornet was sunk by the Japanese forces in the Battle of Santa Cruz Island in October of 1942. Japanese bombers and torpedo planes heavily damaged the Hornet, eventually causing the crews to abandon ship. Two Japanese destroyers eventually launched an additional torpedo attack, sinking the Hornet. It was in commissioned service for just over a year, according to naval history. And so this is kind of really probably one of the biggest, I would say, naval wreck findings in years. I mean, I couldn't even begin to think. I would actually have to research, you know, the last time a well-known naval vessel that was sank has been located. And it would be interesting to see with the technology we have and with, the, you know, I'm sure they got miniature submersible drones that could fit into portholes and with the camera technology and all that that we have, we'll probably be able to map out this ship and get some amazing photos. I mean, there's already great photos coming out, you know, from the researchers, but I'm sure now that we've located it and we can kind of 
make a plan of attack, see what's left of it. And I, I'm excited. It's going to be really cool over the next few months, if not years, to see the amazing photos and details that come out about the USS Hornet and exactly what caused it to sink. Obviously, we know torpedoes, but now we'll be able to map out the wreckage. We'll figure out where exactly it was hit and what exactly brought it to its current resting place under the ocean. Some of you will not be coming back. There's no other way of telling you that. Just basic statistics tell us that. If in your final moments you see death, Hello. think not of death. Think of the living. And know this, that your sacrifice will not have been in vain. Doesn't make a difference who wins the war to someone who's dead. You're saying he's had his balls blown off. Approximately, sir. I want to see. Holy Moses! Don't kill the ghosts! And so Hulu announced this week that they are coming out with their remake of the 1970 Alan Arkin vehicle, Catch-22. I really wasn't aware of this movie until just recently I was at an event. I can't remember exactly which one it was. I do so many of them. I'd have to go back. I think it was either at um, the Markets of Marion event. But anyhow, a lot of times after the event, uh, there's a couple of guys who bring overhead projectors and they'll throw a movie up on the side of a you know a trailer or what have you. And so a couple months back, they were playing this movie, Catch-22. And it has Art Garfunkel in it, Bob Newhart, um, Alan Arkin, and a who's who of 70s actors at the time. But the movie is so out there. You can definitely tell it was written in the time of the 70s, you know, drug-induced movie production time. Just the rough outline of this movie, at least in the original, there's so much craziness going on. There's a lot of flashbacks going off and on. Um, basically, one of the lieutenants, I think it is, he's either a lieutenant or a sergeant of the quartermasters, he starts um, basically buying more provisions than actually needed and kind of starts stashing them in warehouses and starts what he calls the syndicate and he starts reselling these on the black market all the items that he basically hoarded from the army and he starts selling them on the black market to make money privately and more and more people from within the army and the army air corps get involved but there's so many subplots and so many different sub stories of this movie it's really far-fetched but it's kind of an interesting movie and well, much like Hollywood does with everything nowadays because they're running short on good ideas or fresh ideas for that matter, much like they've been doing with everything else, they're recycling old content. And so now Hulu has just announced that they are bringing back Catch-22 with George Clooney. It looks like Jessica Biel and a few other people. I don't think this one's going to have the wide variety of cast members like the original Catch-22 did. Probably won't have the same budgetary allocations that a large-scale movie designed for distribution in the theaters. Now, what's going to be interesting is the original Catch-22 movie was pretty damn long, but what they're doing for this new version on Hulu, it's actually going to become a miniseries, which means it's probably going to be between 7 and 12 episodes long, maybe maybe 10-ish. Um, but yeah, executive producers George Clooney, um, Luke Davies, David Manchild, Richard Brown. But if you've never seen the original one, I would definitely check it out because it's kind of crazy to see Bob Newhart in such a crazy role. Um, like I said, it's the movie is so bizarre and out there. It definitely has that 70s Pink Floyd the Wall type feel. It's just there are some funny moments, but then they're wrapped heavily in some heavy, heavy moments. And then there's the far-fetched crazy stuff. 
but it's honestly a pretty good movie if you don't take it or yourself too seriously as reenactors as amateur historians a lot of us we have a hard time letting go the amount of knowledge we have about this particular subject matter to enjoy movies um, clearly you could farb all day long on this movie but if you were to let that go and just sit down and just go for the ride and just let it take you where the directors the producers and the writers intended it to take you you might be surprised with how much you enjoyed the movie and definitely would probably want to go track down Hulu and check out the new mini-series of Catch-22 with George Clooney. I don't personally have Hulu. I have to figure out how I'm going to track this show down, but I definitely want to watch it because, be honest with you, nowadays I'm, I'm just dying for new content, even if it's new old content from 1970. So anyhow, Hulu's coming out very shortly with their mini-series of Catch-22. And so I'm looking forward to checking that one out. This episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast has been brought to you by our friends at Act Computers. Act Computers has been servicing the IT needs of Southwest Florida since 2004. They specialize in residential computer repair, laptop repair, tablet repair, as well as small and medium business networking. Act Computers also offers multiple online-based services, such as two-form factor authentication for when needing to access company files and programs over the internet, online backup solutions, antivirus solutions, as well as remote computer repair. So even if you do not live in the Southwest Florida area, but you are having some minor computer issues you could use some help with, as long as you have internet access, Act Computers can help. Give them a call at 239-283-1120. Let them know that you heard about them on our podcast and get $25 off in labor of any service. So whether you need help with your business network, your child's computer fixed, or the laptop keyboard replaced after that issue with the wine, give Act Computers a call at 239-283-1120 or go to act-capecoral.com. And joining us on the phones right now, he is the vice president for the Round Canopy Parachute Team. I was first introduced to these guys, I think about a year ago, we did a reenactment at the Stewart Air Show, and I have done a lot of reenactments at a lot of air shows, but this is the first time we were joined by full-fledged airborne guys who were not just wearing airborne uniforms, but they were jumping out of error-correct airplanes in full uniform. Joining us right now is Vice President Robert Kostelik. Robert, how are you doing? Good, Don. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You guys... You guys do something very, very cool, very interesting, and very um, adrenaline-filled, I would imagine. And that is you guys go up in the air, you're in authentic planes, you're in a 12-person stick, and you jump out in full uniform in modern-day parachutes, but that are designed like the originals. And um, But not only that, you guys are looking for members. So let's get a Absolutely. little... Absolutely, we're always looking for members. Let's back up a little bit. Let's get a little history about uh, the Round Canopy Parachute Team, how it got started, who started it, and uh, how do we got to where we are today. Sure. Um, so I'm the vice president of the American branch of the Round Canopy Parachuting Team. It was brought to the U.S. from Europe uh, in the mid-2000s, I think 2009, uh, originally by a guy named Jack Wingate, uh, who's a former military guy. Um, the European guys have been doing this a little bit longer and have a somewhat of a more established program. Uh, those guys jump uh, both at local drop zones for fun and then also uh, at some of the more historic events at Normandy or in Market Garden, uh, and then oftentimes in partnership with foreign military members, either current or former serving guys. 
Um, so the USA branch of Round Canopy Parachuting Team, we've been up and running. In, this is our 10th year here in the U.S. approximately. Um, membership of about 200 people that show up to our events. Uh, and most of our air shows have uh, 10 to 20 guys or so. Now, you just kind of separate your events from your air shows. So do you guys go out and do your standard run-of-the-mill, what we would consider run-of-the-mill living history event, or do you guys primarily focus on the, the jump events? So the purpose of the organization um, really is to promote the airborne heritage and history, and that's done through the large events in Europe, like uh, you know this year is going to be the 75th anniversary of Market Garden and of Operation Overlord in Normandy. Um, so th- those, that's kind of the primary focus. And then also here in the U.S., uh, members from our team go and jump at air shows. Uh, a lot of the air shows are in the southeast, um, many of them being in Florida. We've also had air shows in uh, the Midwest and in Michigan. In, in addition to that, um, we also have events. These originally started out as training events as a way for guys to stay current uh, and learn and, and get better at parachuting. And they've kind of blossomed into um, events where we get you know 50 or so members that will show up and kind of have fun and uh, jump either in cr- current uniforms or period uniforms out of some more modern aircraft sometimes uh, and then some also some much older World War II era aircraft. Generally we do those at Palatka, Florida, Skydive Palatka. How many of your um, current members are active or recently active members of the uh, military and how many of those are actually airborne members? The majority of our members are current or former military members who at one point in their career were parachutists or military parachutists. There are a few guys that were skydivers um, or, you know, people that are law enforcement or something like that and always had an interest in it and, uh, and look at this as a way of um, you know, participating in something they never had a chance to do when they were younger. Um, as far as the guys that are current or former military, it's maybe split down the middle. I'm a current active duty guy, uh, and then there's a lot of folks that are also retirees or spent some time in the military and then got out. Well, the the extra benefit to that is is kind of everybody, or at least it sounds like a majority of you all are at least on the same page when it comes to the safety protocols, making sure everything gets done safely. Safety is always at the forefront of our operations, um, and we've actually taken a few steps to make things a little bit safer than what you might find in, in active duty military. Um, all of our jump masters are former or current military jump masters that have been through uh, either Fort Benning or through one of the, uh, the NSW schoolhouses. When we run events whether it's either a event or an air show or some of the historic jumps overseas, uh, our members and our participants adhere to the policies and regulations that are currently used in the military. We do that because of the, the large amount of parachute operations that happen in DOD. Um, when you have organizations that use a small sample of, hey, this, this tactic or this technique works in my home drop zone and the equipment that I'm using, um, and that may work fine and well for them, but that's a little bit different than, you know, the 40,000 jumps that the Department of Defense does every year. So as regulations or as training guidance gets updated throughout the military, we do our best to apply that to how we conduct our operations. Now, you were talking a little earlier about uh, you guys, you have your regular maintenance jump training. Everybody's up to skill for the public events. When you do those training jumps, is that still full scale with the larger airplanes doing the stick jumping, or is that more smaller scale, smaller airplanes, more skydiving-esque as we know it in modern-day terms? Is it still the same static jumping and basically exactly like you're going to do it on the day of the show? So we do both. 
generally our events happen at the same time. There's what's called a skydive boogie. A boogie is a term that skydivers use for, you know, a, um, a, a large meeting, kind of a party on the drop zone, usually some sort of events and raffles and barbecues and beers at the end of the day. We try and time our event with uh, a spring and fall boogie that Skydive Flatka hosts. Skydive Flatka is our home drop zone. Um, and during the, throughout the week that we're there for this, uh, we have a mix of aircraft. So in, in the last two years, uh, we've had a CASA 212, which is a small cargo aircraft that the military uses. We've had a C-23 Sherpa, uh, or Skyvan, which is another small propeller-driven cargo aircraft the military uses. Uh, we jump C-47s at Palatka, um, obviously the World War II aircraft that people are familiar with. And then on occasion, we've also used uh, aircraft that's usually more associated with civilian skydiving you know, a small Cessna or uh, a Kodiak, which is a, a smaller cargo aircraft. It holds six static line jumpers, a jump master, and a safety, or uh, about a dozen skydivers. At the event that I met you guys at, um, well, some of your guys, me and a few of my uh, reenactors, we were really, we, honestly, we sat down and we entertained the idea of, could this be something we would all actually be able to do? And so let's say for the sure. sake of this interview, hypothetically, let's say me and a handful of my guys, we wanted to come out and do your training and participate and become part of your group. What is the steps that one would take and what would they expect when they come out to your facility? Just, I mean, obviously we don't have to go into full details, just the broad strokes. Um, what's the, I guess the first thing, what's required of us as um, active participants as far as uniforms and materials needed, things like that. And what do we expect and uh, what's the training like per se? As far as uniforms go, you're welcome to wear whatever you want. Especially during training, there's no sense in um, muddying up or destroying uh, something nice. Um, you know, as you're learning how to do PLFs, it, it's pretty easy to get dirty or get drug across the ground. Uh, and I'd hate to have that happen in, you know, a, a 1942 jumpsuit sure. um, that somebody paid decent money for. So for students or for jumpers during events, you're more than welcome to jump in pants, long sleeve shirt, something like that. The only thing that's required is a helmet that adheres to the, the safety regulations uh, that are in you know, the FM-220, the, the Army's guidance for what, what an appropriate helmet would be. So it could be a ProTech. Uh, it could be a Army combat helmet, the Advanced Combat Helmet, the ACH. It could be an M1 helmet um, or an old Pascat if, if you really so desire. But obviously an M1 helmet with the appropriate airborne chin straps, not just the... Uh regular OD infantry chin strap because clearly that thing will come flying off in the air. And then there's the issue of fixed bales as well. Um, we prefer that our members use uh, swivel bales, not fixed bales on M1 helmets because of the, the likelihood that sooner or later you do a PLF, it's going to snap off. But that makes perfect sense. The other thing to consider too is the weight of this. So while you're going through training, we would actually prefer that guys wear something a little bit lighter weight. Mm -hmm. You know, ProTech, um, Team Wendy makes a bump helmet. Uh, OpsCore makes a pretty good bump helmet. Um, you have less rotational weight as you do PLS and hit the ground, and that translates into guys having less neck injuries. There's, there's, whiplash is minimized. Oh, absolutely. That M1 weighs three pounds, right? Yeah. And if you do a PLF and your chin's not on your chest as it should be, it's pretty easy to have a, a sore neck because of the three pounds. Now, when we go to Normandy and Market Garden or uh, jump at our air shows, we do require that all of our participants be in some sort of period-appropriate uniform. And guys have... The total discretion is to, you know, what patches they want to wear, if they want to wear the American flag on their, on their M42s, uh, that, that's all fine. Um, but it needs to be a period-appropriate uniform. 
Well, that was the thing that I was going to point out earlier when I saw you guys out at Stewart Air Show and they came in. I thought it was cool that a couple of them were dressed up in the British, um, what, the Red Devil Airborne uniforms. And I thought that kind of yep. added some nice um, diversity to the impression because most of the reenactors who didn't, obviously, who weren't jumping, who were actually already out on the field, we were already out, you know, representing 82nd and 101st. And so when your guys came in on the Jeeps and we saw a couple of the guys in the British uniforms, it allowed the public to see the different types of uniforms as well. And so I thought that was really cool. It is a pretty good aspect of it. Um, and a lot of for a lot of the guys, too, uh, it, it gives them the opportunity to represent whatever organization they might have been in on active duty or that they might still be in today. Uh, we have guys that were from the 82nd Airborne, so of course they want to wear the 82nd mm-hmm. patch. I get that. So when the training starts, um, obviously you guys spend a, a lot of time you know, even before you get in the sky, talking about the safety and the, the proper way to land or roll, getting to know the equipment, all the nomenclature and all that stuff. But when it actually comes to jump time, do you guys do it like most civilian-based um, skydiving facilities where you do tandem jumping first to get people used to the free falling? Or what's the uh, procedure on that? Our training program for new parachutists, so for guys that have never been a skydiver, have never jumped out of a plane before in their life, never went through military training, uh, the training program that we have is a week long, and it closely replicates what the Army does at Fort Benning. Uh, we start off with ground school. People learn the fit and wear the parachute harness. Uh, guys get some basic familiarity with how to pack a parachute, which is not something that you know current military guys get. Um, and then from there, you progress to uh, some of the things that you might do at Fort Benning during Tower Week. So we do have a swing landing trainer. People get familiar with releasing their canopy release assembly if they're being drugged. Guys get familiar with how to do a PLF off of small platforms that we have, and then also off of the swing landing trainer. From there, uh, guys will progress into the small aircraft, and they'll do a couple of jumps out of the Cessna. And then if they stay around for the rest of the week, uh, the big aircraft become available once they've demonstrated that initial competency out of the small aircraft. And one of the things, everybody thinks that the dangerous part about jumping out of an aircraft is the landing. Um, Well, certainly, landings are rough on people. Landings hurt if you do it wrong. Um, One of the more common ways that people become injured, though, is bad exits. So we have a lot of emphasis that goes into proper exit from the aircraft, and that's from aircrafts where we're doing a ramp exit, like on the CASA or the Sherpa, or door exits like on the C-47, or non-standard aircraft like our Kodiak or our Cessna. So during uh, during training, all the, the different types of aircrafts are discussed. People have an opportunity to practice that, on the ground before they actually get up into the air. And whenever possible, we're using live aircraft as a walkthrough so students can be familiar with the right way to do things, the safe way to do things. That way they're not experiencing something for the first time other than the actual exit from the aircraft into the sky instead of you know a couple of foot drop onto the ground. How many um, training courses do you guys tend to schedule a year as far as bringing in new people on, new uh, membership training? Generally twice a year. Uh, there's been a few other opportunities that have have risen here and there, but spring and fall is what we shoot for. Uh, so that we have one coming up here in March. Uh, starting March 18th, we have a week-long training event in Palatka, Florida, Skydive Palatka, and then we'll do it again the week before Halloween in October. Well, I also saw on your page you guys had an event on uh, March 24th. Is that a public event or is that a retraining jump? That's Well, it's both. Okay. Um, so March 18th starts our basic ground school. Uh, where students who have never jumped before are going to have the opportunity to learn how to jump out of a plane. That culminates in a weekend uh, where experienced jumpers are going to show up or people who haven't jumped in some years are going to show up, go through a one-day refresher, um, and then jump out of our C-47s that are going to be there. 
you know, the week leading up to a major event will be for training for new jumpers or inexperienced people. And then on, you know, that Thursday, we'll also bring in the guys who haven't jumped in a few years. Our threshold is, for a one-day refresher, is is five years. So if you haven't jumped within five years, we'll put you through a one-day refresher. Uh, if you've if it's been over five years since your last static line jump, we have to put you through a longer refresher to make sure that you're doing things safely and that you're not going to be a danger to yourself or others. Friday and Saturday uh, of March, the 22nd and 23rd, is when our C-47 is going to be there. And so that's when you'll see most of the experienced guys showing up. Now, I can imagine there's probably only a handful of active C-37s available in the country, let alone the world. I would assume that's probably owned and managed by a, um, a third party. So the C-47s that are coming, uh, we have C-47 that uh, the, the nose art name on it is Tycho Bell, and another one, Placid Lassie. They're both local to the southeast. Um, Valiant Air Command is the, the organization that uh, runs Tycho Bell. There's a few other organizations nationwide. There's a commemorative Air Force, uh, which comes to mind, and then I know there's a few others. There's also planes that are in private ownership uh, that, that fly or sometimes sell seats on them as a way of you know the pilots maintaining currency and being able to fly pretty cool planes. Um, we don't own C-47s. The Skydive Palatka that we use either contracts with you know Valiant Air Command or some other organizations that have the Sherpas, the Casas, um, Locally, it's kind of black. If the guy showed up on the weekend and wanted to jump around canopy outside of one of our out of one of our events, then it would be uh, the either the Kodiak or the Cessna. I got you. Um, with the 75th anniversary of D-Day coming up over the horizon, are you guys heading across the pond to participate in that, or is the um, parent organization handling that? We're going to participate with Round Canopy Parachuting Team Europe. Uh, they're the lead on the operation. We're absolutely sending a group of guys there. I'm going to be going there, uh, and you know, it's the 75th is kind of a big deal. It's, mm-hmm. it, it, we're all looking forward to this, and you know, we're going to have the opportunity to get a few jumps, and then possibly one in England as well. There's some discussion about that. Well, back to the previous question with the availability of so many of these planes available throughout the world. Do you guys have a rough number um, as of right now? How many planes you're going to have, and how many jumpers you guys are going to have on that day? I only have a rough estimate. I think that right now for Normandy, we've got about 250 people or so registered, uh, and I don't have an exact count of the number of planes, but sure. it's between five and ten from what I'm tracking. There's another organization that, that does um, airborne operations in Europe, and they have a, a decent amount of planes as well. It's a company called Dax over Normandy. They're more focused on uh, a huge flyover, so a lot of the planes that they're going to have flying over, my understanding is they're not all going to have jumpers on them and some of these are um you know c-47s that were repainted and later used for you know commercial airfare they're not necessarily painted up like world war ii era c-47s the ones that we're going to be jumping parachutists out of it uh into normandy are all configured and look like historic aircraft well i mean 250 jumpers that's still that's still a lot of guys that's still going to be a sight to be seen from the ground and obviously that's just the jumpers there's going to be tons of infantry you know reenactors on the ground and vehicles and tanks and everything else and oh it's gonna be a great time i mean for me just making it to connie this year is on my bucket list but it would just be completely mind-blowing to, to be over there so i'm i'm very envious of you if any of our listeners are interested in um you know looking into your training and joining up with your guys as um your canopy team where's the best place to go and uh and who's the best person to contact start with our website it's rcptusa.org. Uh, and if 
you get to that website and click join RCPT. It's one of the links on the top banner. Uh, it'll explain, um, you know, for people who are already parachutists or are aspiring military style parachutists, how to get involved with us. Um, from there, if, if you want to become a member and attend one of our events, you're welcome to attend either the initial training in the spring or in the fall at one of our larger operations. Uh, or if you're already a current parachutist and maybe you're a strap hanger um, because you're a guy that jumps with the military or you jump with another reenactment type organization that does military style parachuting, you're always welcome to attend any refresher that we have or come to one of our events. Well, Robert, back near the beginning, um, I want to talk a little bit about you now. You said you were um, active serving. Um, let's, yep. let's get a little bit of history about you. Um, where did you grow up and when did you enlist into the military and uh, with what organization do you serve and et cetera? So I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, um, really? You're one of them. The <laughs> yeah. I'm from Columbus, uh, so I can, I can give you a little hard time. So I joined the Army in 2002. I initially enlisted as an 11 Mike, a mechanized infantryman. And then uh, right around the time that I went to basic training in AIT, or advanced individual training, uh, they did a, the Army did away with 11 Mike. So by default, I became an 11 Bravo, just your, your regular, normal infantryman. Um, I went to Fort Hood, Texas as part of the 1st Cav Division. I did a deployment with them. Uh, I, I got out of the infantry in 2008 and then joined um, the Psychological Operations career field. I've been, in, I've been a PSYOPer ever since then. What got you involved with the uh, round canopy jump team, and how did you work your way up into uh, the position you hold with them? I took a little bit of a different path into this organization than most guys do. Um, some people have uh, called us, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of the airborne VFW, the way for current or former guys to socialize, jump out of planes, and have fun. Sure. Um, I didn't approach it from that standpoint. I was looking for a way to jump non-standard aircraft and uh, develop my skills as a jump master. Um, so I, I don't know if it was Facebook or Instagram or, or something, but I stumbled across pictures of guys jumping out of C-47s, and I thought, hey, that'd be cool. How can I do this? Uh, I ended up meeting uh, a guy who's a member of a team through, uh, through a military operation that we were doing. He invited me out to Palatka. I went and jumped with them. I ended up pulling jump master duties out of a CASA. And then fast forward a couple of years, uh, I was elected as vice president this last fall. Well, congratulations. That's a high honor. Thanks. I'm glad to have the support of the members. So you're a Cleveland boy, huh? Yeah, it was a great place to grow up. Um, I don't, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity for me uh, after I graduated high school, and the Army was a path that I always wanted to take. So you know, here I am. His name's Robert Kostelik. He's the vice president of the Round Canopy Parachute Team. And uh, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you guys so much for what you do. And honestly, I've been saying this for a while. I... I'm building up the nerve, but uh, don't be surprised if you see my name on one of your rosters here in the near future. Robert, thank you so much for your time, and I appreciate everything you do. And um, if I don't talk to you before, have a hell of a time over in Europe for the 75th anniversary. Yeah, we're all looking forward to it. And thank you very much for having me on your show, and thank you for your support. Not a if problem. If any of your listeners would like to jump with us, absolutely come out to an event. Check out rcptusa.org. Come out and visit us at an event. Well, thank you for what you do, and thank you for your service, sir, and you have a great weekend. Thank you, Don. It's been good talking to you. Thank you.